You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. A character in the movie Fallen said, there are moments which mark your life. Moments when you realize nothing will ever be the same, and time is divided into two parts, before this and after this. The terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the subsequent days and months following 9-11 have marked time for the survivors and the rescue and recovery responders of the FDNY. There's life before 9-11 and life after 9-11. There's also illness and death. To date, more than 250 active and retired members of the FDNY have died from World Trade Center-related illnesses. The FDNY World Trade Center Health Program has published a 20-year update impact report on the FDNY rescue and recovery workers. The objective of this publication is to update our members on important information the department has gathered concerning the physical and mental health effects of 9-11 on our membership. With us today is Dr. David Prezant, FDNY Chief Medical Officer and Co-Director of the FDNY World Trade Center Health Program. Thanks for joining us, Doctor. Thanks for having me. Welcome. So let's start with your history in the FDNY. How did you start here and how did you become a doctor? Why did you become a doctor? Always interested in science. Always wanted to find something to do to help people. Have no family members who are in the healthcare industry or, or even in the science industry but this seemed like a natural for me. I stayed in New York City. I went to school at Columbia and then medical school at Albert Einstein. Found that pulmonary lung specialty diseases was the most interesting to me. So gravitated there and did specialty training in pulmonary and critical care. And just by accident, met a physician, several physicians who worked at FDNY as a part-time job uh, seeing patients who were on medical leave. And I felt that that would be a a great thing to do, give something back to the city. I interviewed and was told that I would be a great fit, but that almost no one ever retired from this job. It was so good, so I would get on a waiting list and wait for years. As luck had it, a whole bunch of people retired that year. (laughs) And I jumped to the top of the list because they needed a lung specialist and started working here in 1986 and it's just been a phenomenal ride ever since then. Helped a lot of patients, expanded activities to looking at bunker gear and then looking at 9-11 and Ebola and COVID. And it's just been a, a phenomenal journey, the most important professional activity of my life. So our focus today is about the World Trade Center and the health impacts on our uh, members. How did this come about, this program? As physicians for FDNY, we don't just sit in an office, we respond. And we responded on 9-11. Several of our physicians responded to help, as did I and Dr. Kerry Kelly. And both myself and Dr. Kelly were actually caught in the collapse and suffered many of the same things that everyone else did. In addition to musculoskeletal issues, this chronic cough, acid reflux, sinus congestion, we saw it when we were down there. Right. We, we saw how thick and how dense the dust was, how long it lasted down there, and that everybody coming out of the buildings who survived was just coughing tremendously. Mm-hmm. So we knew that this was different than a regular fire. I mean, obviously it was different in terms of the number of people that it impacted. 
-hmm. but I'm talking about the exposure and the consequence that it had acutely on their respiratory system. And of course, knowing from other disasters, we knew that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, would also be a, a huge issue. So we, myself and Dr. Kelly, along with permission from the chief of department and the fire commissioner at the time, we started immediately a treatment program and worked on creating a monitoring program. We were the first group to ever have a monitoring program mm -hmm. starting the first week of October, 2001. We had city support, we had philanthropic support, and we actually had FEMA support early on uh, to achieve this. And we knew it would be important because our members were having symptoms, both right. physical and mental. But also we knew it was important because of lessons learned from the telephone fire in the 1970s. What happened with that? Well, everybody you speak to says that they were exposed to massive amounts of PCBs and dioxins and that everybody died from cancer. But no one had a monitoring program at that time. So even though we have heard about that, and even though we've tried to find out how massive the problem was at that time, it's too late to know. Right. We did not want to make that mistake at 9-11. We wanted to be able to tell our members what really happened, and we also wanted to be able to treat our members so that devastating problems could be avoided. In an earlier podcast that I did with Dr. Carrie Kelly, as she was preparing to retire, and we spoke about her contributions over the years during her career, we did speak about the World Trade Center Health Program, and my understanding from that interview is that we had records, medical records, for our members prior to 9-11, and that's what helped demonstrate what the health consequences of the exposures to 9-11 and the rescue and recovery work actually were. Right. How would you describe that? I think it was critically important. We've always had an annual monitoring exam at FDNY, but in 1996, working in collaboration with the International Association of Firefighters, we expanded our monitoring exam to also include pulmonary function tests. That coupled with our chest x-rays, our labs, our exams, and a lot of data that we had really allowed us to show Congress that this was not just symptoms of cough. This was not just symptoms of people having some nasal congestion, that this was a real disease, that this was a real impact at first on pulmonary function and then on a variety of other systems. Normally, pulmonary function deterioration at FDNY is age-related. SCBA actually does work for firefighters, and their reduction in lung function from year to year is essentially the same as what you'd see in the general population based on aging. It's about 30 mLs per year. But after the World Trade Center exposure, we saw a reduction in the first 6 to 12 months of 360 mLs, 12 times what you'd expect based on our prior data, and even greater amount of reduction in people that were there the morning of 9-11 or people that had the greatest symptoms. What this data allowed us to do was transition from compassion-driven advocacy to data-driven advocacy. Right. What I mean by that is everybody always wants to help in the first you know, year or so after a disaster. People want to help. But after a while, that sort of goes away. Mm. And we saw the same thing with Congress. We had some initial uh, dollars from FEMA to help with us. 
We had philanthropic dollars to help with this. But after a year or two, that funding disappeared. And Congress, when we went there, would say, well, you know, these are just symptoms. They'll they'll go away. But then we had this data. And we were able to publish this data in some of the most widely read, peer-reviewed scientific journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of American Medical Association, Lancet, and others. And by 2006, when we went to Congress, no longer were they saying, oh, this is just a symptom problem, it'll go away. They were saying, yes, there is a real disease. And the question was how to fund the program, Mm -hmm. not whether it should be funded. So when do we start getting funding and, and how was our medical changed in any way to help support this data-driven approach? We initially had that funding from FEMA and from philanthropic sources. And then gradually we would get small increments of funding from Congress. But in 2011, the Zadroga Act was passed and that allowed us to have definite funding for our entire monitoring and treatment program, both physical and mental health, from 2011 through 2016. And then in 2015, with the help of a lot of our partners, we were able to get the Zadroga Act to be permanently enacted, permanently reauthorized. Mm -hmm. And that provided funding from 2016 all the way to 2090. People say, why so long? It's because there were children down there. So it's supposed to last to their natural uh, lifetime. Now, this program is permanent through 2090, but will require additional funding from Congress to keep it going. And that's something that we are continuing to work on now. The particular publication that we're referring to today, the 20 Years Later Health Consequences, How frequently do you publish these studies, and are these studies used toward, you know, affecting that additional funding? So we published our first book at five years, Mm -hmm. and then another one at 15, and now this one at 20 years. We have over 100 scientific peer-reviewed studies that we've published on the World Trade Center, but we really want something permanent out there. So that's why we've published these books over time. Now, they're, they're lengthy, but they have a table of contents, and people look up what's relevant to them. And clearly, one of the most important things that's relevant to them is the incidence rates of cancer. Right. And we knew that that would be the main question, and that's why we knew we were studying that from day one. But it did take us a while to be able to get enough data and to be able to compare it to the general rates of cancer in the population. And we were the first to show that there was an increase in cancer. We published that in 2011, and that was in our 15-year book as well, that all cancers were increased by anywhere, depending how you do the analyses, anywhere from 10% to 30% higher than the general population. Mm. And that's what led the government to add cancer to the Zadroga Act in 2013. Initially, covering many cancers, but excluding actually cancers related to the female reproductive system because there weren't a lot of women in the program to generate data. So they started with breast cancer, but had some very strange restrictions that they required. Mm -hmm. Rapidly, they got rid of those restrictions so that it included all types of breast cancer. 
And then over the last few years, they've included other rarer cancers, particularly invasive cervical cancer and ovarian cancer. They still do not cover endometrial cancer. And that's the stark contrast of the number of women in the program compared to the number of men, which makes it harder to collect any significant data. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. But we've got that one cancer, that one major cancer to add, endometrial cancer, and we're, we're developing data on that right now. But what we really have shown is not just the increasing cancer rates and certain specific cancers that have been increased, prostate, thyroid, colon cancer, certain hematologic cancers, but that these cancers, the program can impact them. And, and how do we do that? We do that with early diagnosis, early treatment, and an immense support system. Right. No one has to worry about copays, deductibles. And when we look at all of this combined, what we found and what we recently published is an amazing reduction in cancer mortality in this program compared to non-World Trade Center exposed people in New York State. Mm that we're able to actually reduce mortality through early diagnosis, early treatment, and this support system that we have. And that's what this program is all about. Right. So in addition to the funding, it really requires the member, active or retired, to be staying on top of their annual medicals, right? Absolutely. Because otherwise you don't have early recognition. Yep. Do you think that's, or were you able to demonstrate that that's the real key piece to the lower mortality rate? It's one of the key pieces. Early diagnosis comes from the monitoring program. Right. Also comes from the treatment program in that people who may not have had a recent monitoring exam, if they have a new symptom, they will come in. But so many cancers start off being asymptomatic, so right. monitoring is critical. We have a slightly over 80% of our group coming for annual monitoring exams uh, on a yearly basis. That includes active and retired members? That includes members? active and retired members. We have about 15,500 members in the program. 75% of them are now retired. Mm. And as I said, slightly over 80% are coming for annual monitoring exams, but 20% are not. They tend to be more likely to live out of state. Right they tend to be more likely to be EMS retirees than fire retirees. We've tried to outreach repeatedly to both of those groups, and we are improving our outreach every year to them, but that's still something we're working on. In the case studies, and in particular the survivor stories, what is your hope by publishing survivor stories? Why, would, why did you decide this was important? In our five-year and 15-year book, we stuck to the data. The 20-year book still does that, but for the first time, we've provided some stories about people whose health has been positively impacted by the monitoring and treatment program. And we're very proud of that. These are people that have come forward to share their story, I think, so that they can demonstrate that people who come down with these illnesses can survive mm -hmm. and that they do survive. When we ask the membership, what do they think their future holds? So many of them feel that their lives will be cut short. Mm -hmm. And so many of them, as, as one would understand, are terribly anxious. 
not just about the fact that their lives will be cut short, but about the pain and suffering they will have to bear if they were to become seriously ill and the pain and suffering that their families will bear with them. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted to show is that there's hope that coming down with an illness does not mean that death is imminent, that treatment can bring back a very, very healthy life, certain modifications being necessary, but of a very healthy life. And what we did in the 20-year book uh, and what we plan to do going forward with emails and videos that we send out on a regular basis are personal stories showing that treatment has been helpful, showing that these members have survived. We started out talking to Captain Al Fuentes, who was probably the most seriously injured FDNY member on 9-11. I know, Al. An amazing man. It's, it's actually an amazing story because what we also highlight is one of our members who was involved in rescuing Al that day, Lieutenant Terry Jordan. And both of these members have had some very serious illnesses. Al was nearly dead. And Lieutenant Jordan, along with several members from the Marine unit, heard his mayday. And they went in to the collapse site to find him. And when they found him, they couldn't take care of him right then and there. So they, they just picked him up and carried him to the river where a boat was waiting and evacuated them actually to Jersey City Medical Center because they thought that Lower Manhattan was under attack. Mm. He almost died on the way. He almost died in the emergency room. And he was in a coma, intubated and ventilated for over a month. Al has recovered amazingly and is living an almost normal life 20 years later. Actually, from a physical health perspective, Terry Jordan has had more serious ailments than Al post 9-11, and we highlight that in the book. Terry requires oxygen 24-7 uh, due to uh, severe emphysema, but he does not let that get him down. He's done the uh, tunnel to towers walk uh, on oxygen. He goes to church every week uh, on oxygen. He has many, many children and many, many grandchildren that he and his wife enjoy regularly. Mm -hmm. And he remains incredibly hopeful about what his future holds for him. And then, of course, we highlight cancer survivors. And one of those cancer survivors is, is you. And we, we talk briefly about your story and the importance of pap smears and the importance of early diagnosis and treatment and uh, how phenomenal it is that we still have you here and uh, can still you know, share our lives with you. Thank you. The program really is, as you said, a blessing. I mean, the amount of support that you get, not just financially, and financially is a huge burden that could really demoralize to the point of feeling hopeless. But this, the other support that you get, the psychological support, the assistance, getting to and from, I never had to worry about how was I going to get anywhere or get home. And for me, the treatment was Monday through Friday, the radiation, and then the chemo once a week on top of that. And, and we will continue to follow you and, and everyone else so that 
but we can keep you healthy. Right. We've had several people, thankfully not many, but we've had several people who have had a reoccurrence, right. but we've caught them early and they're doing well. And that's also because of the annual Annual monitoring more frequent, and, or more right. frequent surveillance for those members that have had cancer. We were the first to advocate that cancer should be part of the program, and thankfully, we finally got it covered in 2013. But when it was added to the program, I thought that many of our retired members would transfer out of our program and go to one of the other major medical centers that has a World Trade Center program. Right. They would get the, the same financial benefits. And those are hospitals that have an entire cancer treatment facilities. Right. But it didn't happen because we provide something more than treatment here. We are able to get you treatment at every one of these major medical centers. Right. But we provide more than that. We provide case management nurses that follow you and remind you and help you to get every service you possibly need. And then we have the family support unit. And we have the culture of inclusivity, of just total support mm. that is part of FDNY. Right. Is there a way of measuring that additional support and factoring it into this better outcome for the cancer survivors? We can't separate out these issues mm. because we don't want to withhold support from anyone, oh, that's a good point. Right? right? But we have shown that our mortality rates for cancer are far lower than the general population in New York State. Right. For women, in addition to the annual medical that they do at FDNY, they have to also continue annual or at bare minimum every other year GYN exams because that's really the only way that the female reproductive cancers will be detected, right? Absolutely. This is an occupational health facility. We encourage all of our members to have breast pelvic and rectal exams by their own physician. But it is critical because without pap smear, without a mammogram, we are missing a huge part of the story and we are not able to impact with early diagnosis, right. early treatment, better survival rates. Right. And in addition to that type of testing, the program also covers colonoscopy. Yes, right. we cover all of the cancer screening tests that are approved by the federal government for the general population. So we cover pap smears and mammograms. We also cover colonoscopy. We cover low-dose chest CT screening for those mm. people who have been exposed and who are smokers or past smokers. And we also do blood tests for early screening of leukemia, as well as not covered by the federal government, but covered by FDNY, is the prostate-specific antigen test mm. to pick up prostate cancers. Our focus thus far has been really specific to the cancers, but there are other medical diseases that have been brought about from the World Trade Center exposures. What are some of those? So right from the beginning, we saw what was described as World Trade Center cough syndrome, which is a combination of chronic sinusitis, acid reflux, and obstructive airways diseases, including asthma, chronic bronchitis, and COPD. And then we have other illnesses that are often ignored, and that is the mental health impacts right. of, of the exposure and of the, uh, the guilt of surviving, uh, the anxiety of, of not knowing what will happen over time. Mm -hmm. So we have a huge mental health program for post-traumatic stress disorder. And what we've realized uh, over the last 20 years is that the post-traumatic stress disorder can be chronic, 
but that it also can morph into chronic depression mm -hmm. and for some substance abuse. So we've expanded our programs to include attention to those two areas. Talk a little bit about how the pandemic affected this population of members being followed by the health monitoring program. The pandemic uh, had a massive effect on, on the health of, of all people. The obvious issue is the pandemic causing you to have COVID-19. And what we have shown is that those people with abnormal lung function are uh, most susceptible to serious COVID-19 infection. But there's another effect of the pandemic, and that is a reduction in health utilization. By that, I mean people are scared of getting COVID-19 smartly, and especially before the vaccine was available. So they stayed home. They did not go to see their doctors. They did not go for their cancer screening tests. They did not come in for their annual World Trade Center health monitoring exams. So we're playing catch up right now. We're offering the vaccination. We've actually had our own vaccination program for not only our active members, but our retirees and, and even their family members. So hopefully with vaccination and with time, more and more people will be able to come back to our program, get their annual monitoring exam, get their cancer surveillance tests, so that we will not have a catastrophe. Uh, we are able to deliver medications by mail to our people, and we also have telehealth video conferencing that we can do for both mental health and physical health problems. And we relied on that during the pandemic, and we still have that capability today. So down the road, what do you see in our future relative to this health monitoring program? Well, we know it will continue. We know it will adapt based on our members' needs. I mean, we've proven that. What we need to do is continue to grow, continue to adapt, continue to have an open mind, continue to take people's symptoms seriously and explore whether they are World Trade Center related, but even if they're not, provide them with guidance, provide them with support to the best of our abilities. I believe that the real challenge is dealing with our retirees when they move out of state, right. and also dealing with the impact of aging on the needs of this group. Mm -hmm. the, the aging issues, many of which will be unrelated to the World Trade Center, will still require a great deal of patience on our part and on the members' part, and that will be a huge challenge. I'm sure you've heard other people say this. There's a general sense that the World Trade Center illness memorial wall will far exceed the 343, the iconic number killed on 9-11 from the FDNY. We're already over 250, so we're probably somewhere around two years away from exceeding 343, maybe even less than two years. And within the group of those being monitored, there's a sense that eventually, even if we live a long, healthy existence in the interim, that the majority of us will ultimately die of a 9-11 related illness. Do you think that's a fair and accurate statement as the physician and as the co-director of this program? Well, I think it's a fair and accurate statement that eventually the memorial wall will include more than 343 members. I think that because cancer is a World Trade Center covered condition, right, many of the people that ultimately die will die from a cancer and 
that will be World Trade Center related. But we as healthcare providers promise people that we will get you a quality of life that is worth living for. Thank you for taking the time today to share this information with our listeners. You know, they're active and retired members, but we have listeners from all over the world, uh, both within the fire and EMS service and from the civilian population as well. So I know that they will have found all of this information particularly enlightening. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank everyone for listening. Probably a good time for us to remind everybody to be up to date with their annual medical and for the women to ensure that they're getting their follow-up GYN examinations as well. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org.